Hi, and welcome to episode four of Contracast. My name is Kat Boyd. I'm joined with my co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? And um, we've also got a very special guest today, um, our friend Pete Romand, who is back from the USA for some time. I am. Nice to be here. Um, so this episode is going to be a little bit of a trip down memory lane. It's the fifth anniversary of the 2014 independence referendum so just a heads up to anyone who's tuning in that this will be some old trots reminiscing about the glory days <laughs> our misspent youths misspent youths so how is being back in scotland pete it's great i mean you know i've got nothing to say to that fuck so maybe we should do like a little bit of background about how we know pete um so i met pete in about i think 2011 when we were doing the coalition of resistance although i think i met you at marxism festival back in the day that's quite possible you know what i think we probably met very briefly during like the student anti-war movement days Uh, when you're strathclyde as a glasgow when we're doing some crazy stuff. Yeah, that's the thing about the trot left is that it's like disgustingly small. <laughs> <laughs> disgustingly so. I would have known you from the same era, I think. Yeah. You were involved before me at Glasgow Uni. I only got involved about 2007, something like that, maybe. I was basically a year before that. I mean, let's be honest, for every young lefty of our age that's how we first got involved the anti-war movement yeah. so that's what it would yeah I think so although I do occasionally stumble across like people my own age who are in the Labour Party and have been in the Labour Party since they were a student and I just think like you were the guys at uni that we were always <laughs> always having a battle with yeah I mean I won't I won't name names but uh, there are now uh, like prominent Corbynite supposedly MPs or at least kind of on the soft left of that phenomenon who we remember yeah you're as, not naming I, names but I know exactly who you're talking yeah, about who, who we remember as sort of pro-war campus activists and let's be honest right if you were the guy in a Labour club strutting about campus in a suit and now you claim to be a lefty just know that you're the enemy deep down yeah deep yeah. down inside you're the enemy Speaking of Labour supporters, um, Pete drew our attention to this uh, fascinating little infographic. Um, a little nugget of research. Where did this come from, Pete? Is, it, is this official research? This is what you do for, for a living. He's <laughs> an academic researcher, he's doing a PhD, so this is what he does. I should him. also say that people might know Pete from the book that he co-wrote with James Foley in 2014 that came out it was called Yes The Radical Case for Independence that's right isn't it that's the one yeah Um, great book it do you know it was a really it was a really great book and it was a really important contribution to the debate and it was dead radical at the time but now I've like flicked through it quite recently and I think that a lot of the kind of left proposals, left wing proposals that are in it are now hegemonic in certain parts of Scottish society. Like we've seen a fundamental shift, I think, since the referendum to the left in a lot of Scottish politics. I think that's definitely true in terms of things like um, what people actually say about social phenomenon. So one of the best bits in that book is a critique of sort of Glasgow's development. Mm. And it says, actually, that the the commercial-led development of Glasgow city centre was basically a kind of disaster for a lot of the working-class mm. communities in the city. And that sounds like a hackneyed thing now, right? People like um, Darren McGarvey have really pushed mm. that idea into public consciousness. Actually, when that book was written in 2012... That was people, a subversive thing to yeah, say. Yeah, people were still clapping their hands and saying, isn't it great we live in a lovely, shiny new Glasgow and it's not as filthy as it was in the 1990s? Yeah. But um, you don't have gang warfare, like you don't have these kind of problems. But these problems have always been like, so like the drugs deaths, for example, have always been like simmering under the surface of all the yeah. retail glass and steel that's yeah. just been built on top of the city centre. And mm-hmm. um, that worries me about the future of Glasgow. Yeah. You know what I mean, like everyone knows that the arse has fallen out of the retail market. So what does Glasgow of the future look like when there aren't any shops anymore? Absolutely. You can already see that looking at the city centre. There's there's already bits that are just being deserted. Yeah, like that far end of Argyle Street and stuff. 
it's just a bomb site. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the days before Buchanan Galleries. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I remember that, but I'm not from Glasgow. One, one You're from Edinburgh. I am from Edinburgh. See, I'm originally from Lanarkshire and David's from Ayrshire, so yeah. none of us are really Glasgow natives. No, no. One one bit of analysis as well that, again, like, it was probably my favourite chapter of that book at the time was about British nationalism, but it's like almost an argument seems so out of date now, because at the time, if you remember, everyone was talking about the referendum as, so for example, no vote, no campaigners would cast it as bad nationalism in Scotland. Mm. And we attempted to say in the book, like, well, hang on a second. There's not just one nationalism at play here. It's not nationalism versus some neutral force. There's nationalism and there's also British nationalism, mm. the notion that the British state should stay together. Yeah. At the time, that seemed a little bit it subversive. Was. That was boring. It was, yeah. like, subversive at the time. I remember, like, really rehearsing that argument, to be honest. It was the stuff about, is it Michael Billig? Yeah. Um, and banal nationalism being in our faces all the time, but as unseen, so mm. around the Olympics in London or the Queen's birthday, and you have this kind of, like, banal sense of British nationalism. Um, but in that book, you really like drew out that argument and now I see it all the time. Not only that but that idea and again I mean it, it seems like such a as you say it's such a hackneyed idea now that people forget that it ever had an origin right but it was people on the left of the independence movement who were pushing that analysis yeah. but that idea has since been on a journey so you now hear nationalists saying yeah, but you say Scottish nationalists, you forget that they're also British nationalists. Therefore, Scottish nationalism is good. <laughs> which, which was never the purpose of the argument, do you know what I mean? See, once you've unleashed an idea out there and it's like, you can control the directions it goes into, that argument has turned into, therefore, nationalism is a good thing, fact. Anyway, back to this interesting piece of research that you have brought along with you. Well, I think that what we'll do is when we get guests on the podcast, we'll ask them to bring along something they would like to put into our burn book. <laughs> For anyone that hasn't seen Mean Girls, please check it out. So it's sort of like show and tell at school. Show and tell. Okay. Yeah. You've been in America too long. <laughs> so what I've brought today then is a fascinating nugget of research because let's be honest academics are always investigating the really important topics the fundamental questions mm. in our society and in this case it's the self-reported fantasies of political party supporters this is sexual not political fantasies these are sexual fantasies <laughs> <laughs> to be clear <laughs> what is the, the the political fantasy of like a Lib Dem supporter Joe Swenson. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, not, not that different from the sexual fantasies. The, the political fantasies of UKIP, who are down there as well, it's a bit more sort of torch-lit processions, that sort of thing, you know. Um, uh, and I don't know, I mean, we'll get on to this, but for Labour, something suitably vanilla, uh, by the looks of things, for their political fantasies. But the sexual fixations of political party supporters. I mean, the most boring one is the first one, Right. Conservative supporters, their fantasy is sex with a sports star. Yeah, I'm like interested in what kind of sports. Tim like, Henman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. It's like it's not some like sort of sexy footballer or big hunky chunky rugby type. It's no. definitely Tim Henman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe like Andy Murray. Uh, uh Sebastian Cole. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's definitely a Tory out there that has like a Frankie Del Tory fetish. <gasps> Dark. <laughs> um, but these are. This is from a. This was from a bigger study, wasn't it? About yeah, like... so it's actually like a statistical study. So these are like the uh, the fantasies that are significantly different, statistically speaking, from all other political party supporters. The Lib Dems, I find fascinating. Actually, maybe first Labour, right? Because there's some here that are just so sad, right? Yeah, the Labour one makes me feel really... <laughs> one, one of the big fantasies of Labour support is, is passionate kissing. Yeah, yeah. And if it's a fantasy, that, that means that that's not something that you have in your life. 
Yeah, this, this is the thing though, right? Is I'm actually slightly freaked out by the Labour one because the list is very long, right? And it includes things like uh, sexy clothes and passionate kissing, right? <laughs> On the one hand, right, that does look like ultra vanilla and like you have the most boring sexual fantasies in, in the world. But that also does mean that you're basically sexually aroused all the time. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, if your biggest sexual fantasy is, like, a quiet walk by the seafront holding hands, right? You're, you're basically... You must just be in a mess just walking around. Do you know what I mean? Seeing someone give someone a peck on the cheek and just exploding in your pants. Yeah, the passionate kissing as, like, their fantasy just makes me think that, like, it's dead lonely sounding. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> It's such a shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it, it does. It does sound kind of sad, but it's also it's just the fact that the list is so long. As yeah, well. it is the longest of all the all the parties. We've got so- sex outdoors, sex with strangers, sex with a TV or movie star, sex with someone else's partner. <sighs> Wonder who people. Are yeah. About there. <laughs> we want details, people. We want details. <laughs> If anyone has any information, please contact the pod. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is like, you can whistle blow. <laughs> yeah. We must seek out these beasts. <laughs> Immediately. I mean, I bet people have fantasies about, like, Jeremy Corbyn and stuff. He's got that sort of priestly vibe. <laughs> You know what I mean though Like the yeah. kind of like I mean that mixes two fantasies A Jeremy Corbyn fantasy With the sex uh, Wearing sexy outfits fantasy I mean you know Yeah Yeah like role play Like Jeremy Corbyn On the doorstep challenge <laughs> um, Right Right okay Well I think we'll leave you Kip to the last Because it's the best uh, So we've done The Tories and Sebastian Coe The Labour Party And a friendly hug uh, <laughs> uh, what are the Lib Dems? The, the, the Lib Dems, as I remember, are um, sex, sex, right, sex with someone uh, of a different ethnicity. You see, that one is interesting because someone said to me yesterday they are like the whitest political mm. party in yeah. England by a long way, right? So it is like you say, it's like a, a sexual fetish is used something that's somehow unreachable or beyond you or something yeah. like that. It's the object of desire is always beyond you. So anyone who's not white. No Lib Dem has ever, you know, met them. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the most impossible fantasy of all. What else have we got? It's, but I also love, right? Okay, I love the... Again, this is fantasy, right? In your deepest fantasy, what do you want to do? There's a really othering aspect to Lib Dems being like, oh, yeah, just really dream of a brown person. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and also, right... Like, so exotic. So exotic. Never going to happen, though, is it? It's never going to happen. And they've also got watching someone masturbate, bondage, filming self, having sex. <laughs> you dirty bastards, man, honestly. Like, I just think, like, filming self, having sex, that's, like, so neolib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not like, always. That's a selfie generation it's stuff. Pure narcissism. It? Yeah. Pure narcissism. Um, which is kind of accurate for the Lib Dems, I think. So. You miss one out. Well, well. Sex oh, with someone transgender. Sex with someone transgender. This reminds me a little bit of was it Alex Jones? Oh yeah. It was like so Alex Jones was like being like super transphobic and doing all his chat, but then like someone got a photo of him on his phone and he like, had, like looking at like transgender pornography. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, we see you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so UKIP. Tell me about UKIP. Well, there's only one item. I, I, you know, there's only one item that, that they are statistically more likely to be, you know, have as, have as a sexual fantasy. And it's using a vibrator or dildo. <laughs> I love, I love the multi-option quality of that as well. Vibrator or dildo. Um, now, so we see when it says using a vibrator or dildo, we should explain something here as well, which is that the average <laughs> membership of UKIP is... Male. Male, it's 75 years old or something like that, right? <laughs> so it, they could have just accepted, you know, uh, their physical status and they might like the idea of a vibrator or dildo because their own 
organic propensity has failed them, right? And they and they recognise in a very unfetishistic way that the only chance they're ever going to get to have a, a sexual encounter again is with a vibrator. That's very forgiving of you. It's very forgiving. I suspect that's not it, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect that vibrator or dildo, uh, they uh, they want to be inserted in a certain elderly male orifice. Their yeah. orifice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having nightmares of how I'm going to edit this part. <laughs> well, you know, I only came on here because I was promised the they would be sneering trot politics. Oh, that, yeah. That's one of your reviews online. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I, I wanted me a bit of that. And Sneer you're not away. you're not disappointing so far. Yeah. <laughs> Sneer away. <laughs> Obviously, one group that is, uh, that's messing, well, the Greens aren't on it, but I don't really know. Like, I would assume that the Greens were into furries. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is the thing, though. If it's a thing that you can't have, it would just be like eating a sausage roll. (laughs) Just just desperately want to pump like a fat person stuffing themselves with like loads of meat products. (laughs) Take that either way, you know what I mean? Um, And then we've got to ask about the SNP, therefore, is easy. It's just like... Careful now. It's just like sex with an English person. That's it. Even this passionate kissing with an English person. <laughs> Kate Winslet. Um, and there's also, of course, uh, there's no trots on it, which is probably for the best. Yeah, because that would just be all manner of filth. Just I mean, the most degraded. Do not bring up race play or the sex chair. This does not refer to anyone currently in this podcast. I just want to. <laughs> <laughs> No, but the weirdest Trotsky split of all time surely has to be a split over race play and sex chairs. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners won't be aware of this, but that that did happen a few years ago on the British left. Yeah, there was also, I think there was a... I mean, I suppose this isn't so much like a fantasy split, but do you remember that website, OK Comrade? Oh, that's so gross, You should see the face that David is making right now. He's honestly repulsed. But it was a dating website for left wingers called OK Comrade, um, as like as an OK Cupid. But apparently there was like a big split in the website folded. I think because of the categorization of people's different traditions politically (laughs) and where they stood on the Spanish Civil War. Oh my God, man. <laughs> that really happened. Can't make this stuff up. Yeah, so there's no no SMP, no trots, and definitely no uh, trot nats. Yeah. <laughs> As we are, I guess. Yeah. I remember actually we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but on the night of the uh, of the vote in 2014 a really angry SNP staffer came running over to me and just started shouting at me, um, we're going to rule Scotland forever and a day. We're going to be the Scottish government for forever and a day. What's going to happen to you, trot nats, eh? What's going to happen to you? And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> David works out of a bunker in Kenning Park. Yeah. Keep moved to America. Yeah. I fled the country. Um, you fled the country, yeah. <laughs> Me, less said the better. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that the referendum in 2014 did make us... Well, it didn't break us. Mm. That was more like the 2016 election, which <laughs> Pete says if we ever do a podcast about Rise... He's upsetting himself. The 2016 election, he is not going to listen. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I'll listen to everything else, but that, I can't do it. I don't, I don't know if I could ever make it. I think, like, pouring over the corpse of rice, <laughs> <laughs> doing the autopsy, um, would just be too much. It's too soon. Too soon. Too, too soon. soon. Too soon. Um, 20 years, probably too soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, Pete, you are actually back here with a purpose. 
I am. You, I are, am. you are interviewing participants of the 2014 referendum. That's right. Some of my research is on nationals and populism and particularly the referendum and the referendum campaign. So I've had the chance to speak to all sorts of different people about their recollections of that time. Yeah. Some have been good. I think for some people, the catharsis of talking about everything that happened has been useful. I feel like I've played mm-hmm. a double role, researcher and therapist. Yeah. I yeah. charge by the hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very high charge, I'll be honest. Yeah. But I've heard some interesting stories and, you know, five years on, it's interesting. Yeah, I think that these anniversaries are good points to sort of take stock and reflect and think about actually how much has changed in five years like for me it's not so much about it being five years it's much longer than that because I always kind of trace it back to when we started Radical Independence Mm -hmm. and that's 2012 so I kind of go back to to that point a lot of the time and the first conference that we had in 2012 and that being a really big moment for the left in Scotland yeah it was I mean it was it was the first kind of um, sort of large scale broad left event in Scotland, really since the kind of meltdown of the left in sort of two thousand and seven ish. Yeah. Um, so it was important, and it, and it kind of pointed to how significant uh, the independence movement would become for Scottish left wing opinion in the broadest sense. We're not just talking about people who view themselves as like socialist activists or whatever. But that, that I do want to start by like what what did people when when before before all this before two thousand eleven for example when the Scottish government uh, won on the on the basis of an independence referendum before the Edinburgh Agreement in twenty twelve, Kat, what did you actually think about Scottish independence if at all? I mean, I it's hard to like unpick some of this stuff because do you ever get that thing we've spoken about something so many times Mm. and like you've kind of made these very concrete facts that Mm -hmm. when you go back and obviously if you're doing like an interview or making a speech you're saying something in a particular way for a particular effect that is true but that so much lies underneath it so I remember at the first conference in 2012 talking about the anti-war movement um, and that being the point that we become, like many of us became like internationalists for independence. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Mm-hmm. Like, I still, I remember at that point believing that the British state was so rea- such a reactionary force that there had to be a breakup of the British state mm-hmm. um, for the good of the world, like a very kind of anti-British, anti-imperialist position. But I kind of also always felt that Scottish nationalism was a very fringe thing. Mm. And I would never have like considered myself as like an ardent supporter of independence really before that point or even like up to like 2011. Mm. Because, I mean, I come from that traditional Labour family mm. where the SNP were... Tartan Tories, like, and that is that's a reality that existed for a lot of people, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to recognise that that was very true in a lot of people's consciousness because that has transformed so much in such a short period of time. Yeah, but they were always like very, like the idea of independence being like a sort of very fringe thing. I mean, support for Scottish independence when that first referendum was called was tiny, twenty yeah. percent or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and. <clears throat> And it's also the case, I mean, I think for all of us, we all came from a sort of social movement organising background. Yeah. And it's not just nationalism sort of felt fringe. It's also the case there was certainly no movement, not even on the streets, but at any real level for independence. Because at that point, the SNP's strategy was to present themselves as the best governors of a devolved Scottish state. They weren't emphasising independence. If anything, they were de-emphasising it. And there was no actuality of independence. And it never seemed like a real possibility to mobilise around yeah. it or organise around it. And therefore, people from a social movement background, like, I, I can't remember when I first started supporting independence. I'd supported it for a while. But it seemed so far away as a real possibility that what was the point in doing much about it up until the SNP win an election? Would you describe it as a fantasy? 
<laughs> well, there is something in that though because um, I mean, I, I had a similar kind of background in the sense that the only thing that I had never heard much about the SNP growing up in a sort of labour household, the only thing I'd ever been told is that they were a bit odd. You know what I mean? It was a bit like being in UKIP or the Liberal Democrats or something like that. There was only two real parties, the Conservative Party yeah. and the Labour Party, and then there was just a, there were some little bits of oddballs out there. And one of those was people who were really interested in Scottish independence. Though, like... You say that, but... Like, the minority SNP government had delivered some serious reforms, mm. right? Serious reforms initially proposed by the Scottish Socialist Party, uh-huh. like yeah. free prescription charges, free school meals for all kids, yeah. that yeah. sort of yeah. thing. I think I think there was a silent shift, though, because I'm mainly talking about growing up before 2007. Right. I think there was a silent shift from traditional Labour people. There was a quiet shift going on to the SNP, and more quietly and subconsciously towards independence. But see, more than anything else, that was about New Labour. That was yeah. about frustration with the New Labour project. And I think that that's true, just it, not just at like a UK level, so it's not just about like Blair and Brown and Iraq and all of that. Like That's not just that, but I think it's important to remember that the Labour led administrations in Scotland were disastrous. Like, their legacy is PFI. Like, every time I read a story in the newspaper about the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary and, like, how much that has cost, and, like, that was their legacy. And I think that they were very much at that kind of, like, neoliberal centre within Scotland. Even if you take something like the war in Iraq, Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Like, the vote that happened in the Scottish Parliament, very few Labour MSPs stood against it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Scottish Labour has traditionally been to the right of the party uh, uh, UK wide. So they were they spent they spent the first two administrations of the Scottish government very much building up a funeral pyre on which they sort of burnt during the the the, the referendum um, period. But um, yeah, twenty twelve. So how did everyone get involved in the first uh, Rec conference? So, um, so I remember that first conference was really built out of the SNP's U-turn on NATO. Hmm. So I remember like the first thing that we really did were setting up radical independence, but there was also like the no to NATO campaign where the SNP were having that conference to decide their position that an independent Scotland could be part of NATO, which was reversing a long-standing policy. And a lot of us that were involved in Radical Indie like mobilized around that. And that was like really, I think, kind of the springboard for that first conference because people who walked away from the SNP, like Gene Urquhart and John Finney, were then our kind of keynote speakers in a lot of ways, like being on those opening, the opening plenary in 2012. I think that's that's my memory of that time, is that kind of NOTO-NATO being a launch pad. The other thing I remember is building for that first conference at the big indie demonstration in Edinburgh. So there's a, there's pictures of us with the banner that's like Radical Independence Conference, 24th of November, on that demonstration. Do you remember that demo? I do. I remember turning up and being like, why is everyone dressed like they're banner partners? <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of like guys in chainmail outfits uh, and stuff. Uh-huh. But they were open to left-wing politics. Totally. Like the, the way we built for the conference at that demo was the Jail Blair petition because um, Margaret MacDonald had that motion up at the Scottish Parliament about jailing Tony Blair if he set foot in an independent Scotland. We had a petition in support of the motion. Mm. And I remember going round asking people to sign it. And I have never done a petition like that in my life. Like, people were snatching it out of my hands. Like, yeah. anyone who's listening to this who's ever been involved in any type of campaign where you've got to ask members of the public to sign a petition will know that people will body swear. People will stop, drop and roll to get away from you. <laughs> but at this event, at the bandstand at Princess Street, there were 
amassed crowd me and one of our friends were going through the crowd like asking people to sign it and someone would sign it and then the guy behind would be like oh yeah, I'm signing that too because it just had jail Blair <laughs> on the top of the page <laughs> yeah. and like everyone who signed that petition like we then contacted them but the conference because it was th- that first conference was very internationalist it I was. remember it being like lots about like, the anti-war movement lots about Palestine yeah in fact, there had been a, an action on Palestine the, the night before. Yeah, some of the chief organisers of the conference ended up on the, the roof of the Scottish Parliament yeah, protesting. The, night, the day before the conference and then spent the night in jail. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that we, uh, in our flat, we had uh, a guy from Quebec Solidaire that we'd invited over to speak at the conference. Now, I was in Glasgow helping organise the conference, but my other two flatmates in Edinburgh at the time both got arrested on the roof. And this poor guy from Quebec is sitting in this horrible, disgusting flat <laughs> strewn with placards <laughs> and leaflets. And it's like, what am I supposed to do? Where am I going? Why have my hosts been arrested? <laughs> that, was, that was good days of direct action. Yeah, they were. The thing is, like... The first conference was a big success, but I remember it took so much to get to that point. Yeah. I mean, I remember our strategic thinking at the start. Like, there were a few different layers to it. On the one hand, we knew that the SNP was trying to position itself as a left alternative to Labour, but at the same time that it promised social justice, it was also arguing for corporation tax yeah. cuts. And we knew that as the campaign went on, the forces that would act upon the SNP, the forces that were more powerful were the forces of the right. And the SNP would ultimately end up triangulating and incorporate that messaging more and more. Mm. And we knew we needed a left-wing campaign to be able to pull it back to the left. We needed a counterweight to the sort of pressures it would face from business elites, Westminster, yeah. and so on. And on the other hand, the left was in a shocking position at the time. Yeah. It was fragmented, it was weak. We'd been able to develop some sort of unity around anti-cuts work, but really we had to be able to create some sort of social movement infrastructure, which would not only bring the left together, but would bring in left-wing-minded people towards the left of a pro-independence movement. You could then build that, and hopefully, because look, we know that social movements, we knew this was going to last a few years, and then after that, often social movement activity dissipates. Yeah. And we knew we needed to build some sort of infrastructure that you could try and bring people together around that could then translate into mm. a, some sort of future left-wing project. Yeah. And so I think that was some of the strategic thinking we had around when we were first yeah. setting it up. And as you say, though, I mean, when NATO came up, that like that was a moment in which it was such an, a moment of polarisation where we could really yeah. make an argument yeah. to the left of the SNP about why we needed a separate organisation yeah. like this. Yeah. I remember like when Yes Scotland kind of launched that it was very much like this, it was like Yes Scotland was the like the centre ground of Scottish politics. It was represented by kind of middle Scotland, if you like, you know, the professional classes, you know, that Scotland was one kind of nation represented by these kind of heads of institutions. But that wasn't the story about Scotland that we wanted to tell. Yeah. Because it's like we were talking about earlier with Glasgow. Yeah. But there's a there was a particular myth about Glasgow, you know, being one city. Yeah. But actually Scotland as a nation, like Glasgow as a city, is created by these conflicting and clashing forces. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's like Tories versus socialists or imperialists versus internationalists. It's these clashing forces that create the development of Scotland. And we really wanted that to be represented. Like, I wanted that story of Scotland to be told through the referendum. Do you know what I mean? And to have a place where working class people who were angry at austerity and angry about the war to see that there was an opportunity to do things differently and independence. And it's hard to remember this now, but one of the big arguments at that time was this stuff about positivity. Yeah. Like only a positive campaign would win. And this was based on a gross misreading of Obama's campaign, that he had used a relentlessly positive campaign to beat whoever it was. Who did he beat in his first election? He beat McCain in his first one. In and, Sarah Palin, and Sarah Palin, yeah. Um, but that was totally false, apart from anything else. He used loads of negative messaging. But our attitude was, if this is going to be a social movement and that's what it's going to need to be to beat the entrenched unionist majority in Scotland, then it needs to harness the anger, as yeah. you were saying, in society. It needs to harness the fact that there's, it's not progressive Scottish nationhood 
versus backward looking British nationhood. That's not that's not something that's that's gonna uh, is gonna work because it's not a true depiction of the society that we live in apart from anything else. They also didn't even want to talk about backward British nationhood. No, of course. That's yeah, true. I mean, that was negative. That was too negative. Was too negative. I mean, yeah. at the start, their idea was to run the strategy as an entirely constitutionalist campaign. There was an interview with one um, SNP minister who said. Our strategy is that we're going to argue that independence is just extending the Scotland Act to all areas of political life. It's as simple as that. Mm. And it's just like such a banal, weak approach. It's just saying, we have Holyrood. You like how Holyrood does does certain things? Give it a bit more. That's all Scottish independence is. And that doesn't ring true to the hundreds of thousands of people in Scotland who are completely disenfranchised with formal politics. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's very much an argument that is had by, like, administrative, managerial-type politicians. Yeah. Yeah. And that was never, ever going to be the campaign that got the result. Do you know what I mean? 45% is still, like, an incredible result against such a reactionary, archaic British state with the entire might of the no campaign um, and all of its backers. I mean, imagine if we'd gone out to the schemes and been like... We really need you to sign up to vote. We really need to register you. Uh, why? Because we want to extend the powers of the Scotland Act. Wouldn't that be meaningful to your life? No, yeah. instead we ran that line of like Sacklatories, like another Scotland is possible. Britain's for the rich, Scotland can be ours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean we got hammered for that. Britain is for the rich yeah. leaflet. And it's and it's sometimes misremembered now is like some people point to how how nationalist that slogan is. Actually, that was a slogan um, among a few others that Rick deployed about, um, you know, the housing estates before the playing fields of Eton and stuff like that. It was, that slogan was hated at the time because it reintroduced class politics. Yeah. Into, and remember as well, like this is so all, so pre-Corbyn this stuff. I mean, we're still, we're basically in a, in a political environment that's defined by, New Labour and David Cameron. Yeah, it was taboo yeah, to be to publicly anti-austerity, anti-trident, anti-war, like yeah. all of those things. You did not hear those voices on TV at all. This is this is why I think it's interesting about that first conference as well, because um, yeah, we can talk about, and I'm sure we will, the the the, the mistakes that were made during that campaign and so there on. There were a few. There were a few. Just <laughs> uh, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, um, but. Uh, Think about that first conference. First of all, two members of parliament who would have had cosy lives as uh, backbench SNP figures or cabinet members if they wanted to be, they abandoned that over the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. Yeah. Right? I mean, I am forever grateful to Gene Arkin and John Finney for that. I mean, they not just, like, terminated their potentially lucrative and cosy careers yeah. um, but also like the friendships and relationships that go along with that absolutely um, and, and to do it over on something on a point of principle on a point of principle and over an issue that a lot of people in Scottish politics will tell you is meaningless like the, the, there's a, a popular thing not just in, in mainstream Scottish politics but on the left sometimes as well of see all this stuff like Palestine NATO and stuff like that people don't care about that do you know what I mean? You get a lot of this stuff now. People don't care about that, so why are you talking about it? That's just for nerds, all that kind of stuff. Uh, see, if it were just for nerds, you wouldn't have had the last couple of years of the campaign, the, the anti-Semitism smear campaign Absolutely. against Jeremy Corbyn, Absolutely. right? And it's difficult. I mean, it is a different world there. I mean, we're saying that uh, the left has hegemonized some political space, and that's true. But it's also the case that people would be shocked by a conference like the 2012 Rick conference now, um, because it was overtly anti-imperialist. It was overtly on the side of people fighting for national self-determination, including groups like the Palestinians. Yeah. You know. I remember one um, SNP activist who I still know and he's definitely left wing, but I remember his contribution to that conference was standing up and saying, I am sick of hearing about Palestine at this conference. I've heard enough about Gaza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but the same people who would say that would also stand up and say things like, I'm sick of hearing about the working class. Class doesn't mean yes. anything. Stop yes. saying those it's words. It's divisive. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's interesting because it does point to this interesting contradiction inside the traditions of the SNP. And I feel like there's like different 
different counter movements going on because like the fact that you had John Finney and Gene Rackett that were willing to resign over NATO because he saw it as such a point of principle mm. does point to a specific legacy and left-wing tradition inside mm. the SNP yeah. Yeah. where I think like for many years what like what kept SNP activists going was their moral commitment to opposing things like Trident. Yeah. I think that even, in some respects, even more than independence, it was what gave them yeah. a sense of moral, you know, justification yeah. Yeah. to their activism. I mean, if you remember, obviously, like before the establishment of the Scottish Parliament, there's a lot of activists going for a long time with no hope of material reward. Yeah. And there is this strong current that comes from the 79 group and so on. At the CND, same time, CND, CND and so yeah. on, yeah. Um, at the same time, once you had the establishment of the Scottish Parliament, and especially after 2007, and then especially after 2011, you have a layer of young suits entering the party who want a career. Yeah. And if you want a career in politics, you go towards a governing party. So exactly the sort of person who would have joined New Labour after 97, and who had probably previously joined the Tories before that, are now joining the SNP. And that starts to transform yeah. the makeup of the yeah. organisation. But then after the referendum, I don't mean to skip ahead, but because you have a flooding in of new members, energised and radicalised by the independence campaign, you have now these weird tensions within the SNP as a political formation that are interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think that you do get that in a mass party, but that's an interesting point that you make about like what holds people together when they're out in the wilderness years. Mm-hmm. Like, and it is that sense of like kind of being morally just having a principle like particularly around things like Trident NATO like that actually being like a core thing that binds people together in those years and I think that's why the SNP changing their position on NATO and remember it was really close it was only a couple hundred I think it was what less than a hundred votes in it Mm. in the end Um, Mm. so even with the entire SNP leadership ultimately coming out in favour of NATO, really attempting to argue with the party membership. I mean, there was lots of stories of Angus Robertson really working the backbenchers, lots of pressure being put on different groups. And the left of the party are told to come out and uh, argue hard at the conference. So, for example, you have Kenny McCaskill saying, I'm fed up of marching. He was seen as one of the leaders of the left. Sturgeon, famously uh, anti-NATO, you know, sits on stage, again, argues that we need to do this. And this is kind of orchestrated by Angus Robertson, supported by Salmond on the basis that he's shown a pretty, a couple of pretty dodgy opinion polls. Mm. Which, so for example, um, the ordering of that poll, you know, I mean, this is crude, it wasn't actually this question, but it was like, do you feel the threat of terrorism? Are you scared of X, Y, and Z happening? So a list of like five priming questions, of which the last one is, do you think we should be a member of NATO? Mm. Now, if you have a basic knowledge of social science and polling, you know that you're priming someone for a yeah. response, which is basically the poll that they put out, that Angus Robertson put out, hoping to convince the SNP mm. leadership to change track. Yeah. See, see um, before we get back to the campaign, it is interesting to note, by the way, that that strategy of putting the party favourites in like the dress circle at conferences, especially left-wing figures, and getting them to argue for a march to the right in the SNP has only recently faltered. It's only recently stopped. And that was the Growth Commission. Yeah. So in the Growth Commission, they did the same thing. They brought up party favourites, but actually they couldn't get that many onto the platform to defend the Growth Commission. And uh, uh, the new intake after 2014 basically defeated it, which is an interesting like uh, development, I think, inside inside the SNP. Um yeah, but okay, so 2012, what's what's the following year like? Like the 2012 kind of wreck year is, for me, like that was very much internationalism. Like that was the internationalist for independence. The 2013 kind of theme was independence as a class issue and the richer voting no. I remember like really in 2013 battering that line because we were doing the mass canvases. The results of those mass canvases, like we had data that showed huge discrepancies between the national polling and what was being polled in like housing estates amongst the working class what was being polled there was 44% for yes and the rest were split between no and don't know 
yeah. that work that Rick did and like kind of pushing that out there I think was one of the most important contributions that we made I think so I think the mass canvases were really important because ultimately the really high turnout is one of the things that mm. everyone remembers from the campaign and radical independence I mean for all the faults that, uh, the you know for all the mistakes we made one of our big contributions was pushing the idea that we need mass voter registration yeah the voter and registration and there was drive. a missing million uh, people who didn't vote in Scotland and that we needed to get them out and that the way you won a referendum was to turn out those people that we didn't need to convince a couple of middle-class swing voters. The point was to get turnout from our base. The people who would support independence were the people who were angry were the people who had nothing to lose. Yeah. It was, I think, totally right. Like, And I forgot that we used that phrase, the missing millions, the missing millions of voters in Scotland and really pushing like voter registration drives at like football games and in town centres and doing and the, the door knocking and all of that. I remember at first, like, I think the mass canvases were really effective, but I remember at first they were partly symbolic because part of the thing of, that gave us success in 2012 at that conference was also that, yes, Scotland just hadn't got moving. Yeah. Right? The referendum had been announced, what, a year and a half prior? Yeah. The first That first year of, like, 2011... Uh, was really just negotiations with the UK government. Yeah. And then all through 2012, like, Yes Scotland, the launch of Yes Scotland wasn't until, like, you know, I think it was around May 2012. Uh, and our conference was in November, but even after that launch, Yes Scotland hadn't established yet. Yeah. They hadn't even, even identified someone at that point to lead Yes Scotland when they had the Yes Scotland yeah. launch. And after that, they were just getting their offices ready and so on. And we really captured something because there were so many people out there that wanted to get moving, that wanted to yeah. do something. So they came to the conference and we lost them, launched the mass canvases. And part of what they were was also, it was like partly symbolic. It was partly a message that, like, look, if a bunch of scrawny, scruffy lefties with no money can pull off these big events yeah. that are gaining national attention and are giving hope to people, not just to people out there, but like to campaigners, giving them somewhere to go. If we can do that, imagine what you could do with a mass campaign that actually has resources. Yeah. So yeah. part of it was about kicking Yes Scotland into gear and about shaping the sort of campaign we thought they should yeah. be running. Because we had no resources. I cannot emphasize that enough. That no I remember that I remember like looking at Twitter around about 2012, 2013, and particularly I think in the lead up to the 2013 conference and you would have nationalists saying that we were secretly a front for the Labour Party to wreck the campaign. <laughs> but then you also had people in the left and the left of Labour saying, you know, we'd capitulated to nationalism and we were secretly funded by Brian Souter. And I was like, we have no money like, <laughs> at all. I remember we ran a 10k race, a bunch of us, and asked for a sponsorship. I think we called it something so naff, like run your own country, which makes me oh. cringe and say. <laughs> but, you know, we asked for a sponsorship for that. Like, we sold those little, like, football cards that you scratch off to oh, win. Yeah. Like, get through that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we actually uh, emerged from that campaign significantly poorer personally. Than yeah, I feel like there's loads of people who made tons of money yes. out of the independence I'm, campaign, and we were not. No, no, no. A lot of people, and by the way, a lot of money went missing during that campaign. I mean, God only knows how many people were defrauded and so on. From Rick? No, no, no. Even I mean, from, like, the general independence I mean, from the independence movement in general, lots of organisations and campaigns got set up, raised a lot of money by crowdfunding, and yeah. then disappeared yeah. just as quickly. Whereas yeah. we just, like, left that campaign with a lot of our own personal debts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember so many people I knew that didn't have any money, were just putting all their money yeah. in. Yeah. You had five quid in your pocket. You know you're doing a stall and you need some leaflets. You spend your five quid on getting yeah. bloody leaflets. Yeah. 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 It was... I remember one now somewhat prominent independent spokesperson basically living in an office, sleeping in a, what was effectively a nest of Rick placards every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he decided that his own place was absolutely disgusting. And all he did was wake up and go to the office, work all day and go to sleep anyway. So he might as well yeah. just sleep at the office. I won't sleep at the office. But I do remember him building a little nest of those leaflets and, and burrowing in there like uh, some wee field mouse <laughs> and just living in an office campaigning for independence I think we'll, we'll make this into a competition if you can guess who slept at the Rick office in a nest of placards and leaflets like a little field mouse 
then there is a prize for you. Yeah. Tweet us your suggestions. <laughs> uh, is, is there going to be a draw when one person gets it right? First come. First come. come. Yeah, wow. first come, first served. Okay. What's the prize? I haven't decided yet. Maybe some like wreck vintage memorabilia yeah oh that's good yeah because I still have because I always think of like the conferences like the first one was the poster the pink one with the windmills it was a beautiful poster the second one was of the um, fourth road bridge that's right yeah is that right yeah that's right yeah the third one it was all big infrastructure I know I love that I love that (laughs) I would like to call it like sort of new deal era sort of uh, yeah Yeah. imaginary yeah (laughs) new deal you know, imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> Write that in your fucking PhD. Yeah. I <laughs> uh, so twenty fourteen then remembrances remembrances. Who has who has a funny story? There was a lot of mad stuff that happened. There was a lot of like really mad stuff. There was a lot of like. Well, how did people find uh, going door to door in general? By the way, did, um, did anyone give any any particular impressions? Because I've got one that I always think is interesting, which is most of the anti English stuff that I had from people. People was from no votes. I remember people like the most determined uh, no votes. Sometimes yes, leafleters used to call them growlers, like <laughs> people who would actually come out of the door at you like a wee terrier, right, and start kind of nipping at you and saying, "I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that." And uh, I got a few people who said to me, "The English will punish us if we do this." And you started, and they said, and you say things like, uh, "The English own," and it was always right wing people love these really spurious. Um, like statistics, do you know that the English own 74.4% of all businesses in Scotland? The English. <laughs> and I like, and there's no point in arguing, no. right? I just like that. Oh, really? Really? I remember having this distinct conversation with someone who said, I think you should know that statistic before you go around chapping doors with yes leaflets, don't you? I mean, I remember um, door knocking someone, a guy who came at the door with like a mug of like, tea or coffee and it was in like a giant Union Jack uh-huh. mug and just being like oh fuck but he was a yes for yeah he was a yes <laughs> for but like on those grounds of like I've just had enough of that mob at Westminster um, I also remember doing door knocking roundabout um, where I stay in Maryhill like the there's like big flats and I remember like there's two doors on each side and like doing the door knock and doing the not like getting a great response and like going past someone's door that had the word beast carved into it. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> that, like the sort of thing you see in a in a film about like pedo hunters or yeah. whatever. But like there was just this door that had like beast. Oh Jesus! I don't knock it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a good decision. Yeah. <laughs> You're not reaching out to the beast folk. Not triangulating <laughs> to the beast constituency. <laughs> listen, listen, if you're not ready to take a pedo's vote, you, you, your heart's not in, in winning can, that. This, this is why we lost, Cat. This yeah, is why we lost. Well, because I didn't like tap up the beast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a major constituency. Aye, but I also got people said really sad. Like it was, a, it was an eye opener to me as well because we did like been to like uh, some of the poorest areas around Glasgow that I've never been to. Yeah. I don't know that I would yeah. have had I not yeah. campaigned there. And some of the stuff that people said to me, especially when we're doing like voter registration, people said to me things like, uh, I can't vote because I've got a criminal conviction. I can't vote yeah. because I'm in debt. I can't vote because I'm unemployed. I can't vote because I've been sanctioned. Yeah. Like it, it ran home to me that people don't don't know their democratic rights. Yeah. And here's the thing, they've never been told what they are. Yeah. It's the first time I realised that. Yeah. See at school, you don't get told. Yeah. Like what your democratic rights are. There's yeah. no one in society tells you that. I mean, I remember one of the, like, I had this really emotional moment knocking doors and it was in like a kind of basement flat knocking the door. And you know, when you go to someone's door and you know it's an old person's house because they've got like a, a rug, like a little doormat and a little stand with a pot plant on it, like an artificial pot plant outside the door. Yeah. I remember knocking it, that taking ages to get answered and then the door like kind of creaks open. It's this like tiny little old man. And I remember being like, oh, hi, like I'm here and da 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 do my spiel. He was like listening. He was like, yep, yep, hen. Ah, he's like, listen, I'll be honest with you. I voted Labour my entire life. I think this time I'll be voting yes mm-hmm. and I just remember that moment and like kind of shit we might win this <laughs> do you know those like little snippets where you can sense a change in yeah. someone like mm-hmm. here is this old man living in this 
drafty building who's trying to keep a, do you know I mean, keep a nice we cosy home for himself uh-huh. who's, do you know what I mean, probably going to be in pension or poverty by any measure. Uh-huh. I might be old, but I'm going to, I'm going to take this chance. And because we're always hit with, it's the old people that are going to vote no and they don't want to do it and pensions and da 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 And just this, like, this old man, I think this time I'll be voting yes. Yeah, yeah. That's such a sweet story. That's cute. I can't help but follow up with an awful one now. Please. So this isn't me, but because I've been chatting to so many indie activists recently, I've heard some great stories about them door knocking and you're reminded of absolute crazies that answer doors. So apparently there's a thing where a lot of guys like to answer the door naked. Yeah. Yeah. And just like answer the door and just stand there and like have a chat with you and would pretend it was totally normal. I once got invited in for a bath with someone. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Did they think you needed a wee clean? He was just like, oh, sorry, I'm... uh, I'm a bit undressed there, just nipping in for a bath. Do you want to join me? <laughs> oh my god. That is creepy he, as fuck. He wasn't hot. <laughs> <laughs> There's also apparently, like, you know, uh, people answer the door in full, like, bondage gear. Gimps it. No. And then, pre- and then proceeded to have a chat. Like, and just pretend it was normal. Just, like, you know, sitting there, like, oh yeah, but, you know, what about the currency stuff? And it's like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, I mean, you're talking about a sweet little old man, and I'm talking about guys in gimp suits. <laughs> the two sides they of Scotland. All, uh, yeah, guys in gimp suits may also be sweet old men who are ready to take a chance. <laughs> and so, do you have any favourite memories of the campaign? I've got lots of favourites. I think my favourite thing, though, the best, I'd say probably the best thing to happen in the whole referendum was about a week before the vote, right? It was when... Do you remember when every Labour MP got a train up <laughs> from Westminster uh, to Glasgow? Yeah. As a show of, like, solidarity. Yeah, they were really, like... It was when the polls had started to, like, shift and shift and shift. Maybe, like, was it the week before that it was at 50%? That's, it was exactly, I think, two weeks before that it was 51% in favour of yes. Yeah. And so the no side had time to respond. But about a week beforehand, Labour were like, we're going to sh- come and say, please don't leave. Love bomb, as used to oh, say. Oh, love bomb. But one activist found out that they were coming about an hour before. <laughs> and he and his mates jumped on a rickshaw with a giant amp. Met them at Central Station, and as they walked up to Buchanan Street, just played the Imperial Death March, the Darth Vader music, blaring. But like they were also shouting stuff. They were just shouting like, "Welcome your Imperial Masters! <laughs> Bow down to the Labour Party! Most of your masters have returned!" And I, I remember most of the MPs just sort of looked like bemused or giggled, and then some of them were well. Growlers. They were just like, <laughs> shouting at these wee guys in the rickshaw, just like get in here, beat it, son, all that kind of the stuff. The best bit of that, though, like the thing I find most impressive is that whoever that is cycled up Buchanan Street all the way. I mean, it was relentless yeah. from Central Station all the way up. <laughs> There's a hell of Buchanan shouting Street. all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> shouting in a, in a bike with an amp on the back. Yeah, it's honestly genuinely one of the funniest videos ever. Weird Miliband. <laughs> that was one of his only interventions in the campaign and he is one of the chief political victims of the independence movement because he got <laughs> trashed in the next election because of it but yeah that was only like one of one of like two events he attended or whatever just yeah but do you know what he is tough on us he is t- he was tough on us he, we don't, this is the thing you should say you don't know what I've been through I've been chased up Buchanan Street by a guy in a rickshaw damn right I'm tough on us uh, uh, yeah but yeah he didn't survive who, rem- who remembers the grim night of the vote the night of the vote was really weird for me because I was I think I was at the Edinburgh count and then I came back to Glasgow oh, yeah. and by the so by the time I left the count at Edinburgh I think I was doing a radio piece uh, with Dennis Canavan actually uh-huh. and then I remember I drove back through from Edinburgh to Glasgow and as I was on the motorway on my own the first result came in and it was Clack Manninshire <laughs> Uh, which will always be remembered. Do you know what the motto is for Clackmanninshire? You know, like every sort of part of Scotland has its own motto. Uh, and so, like, Glasgow's really like, let Glasgow flourish or whatever. Clackmanninshire says, look about you. <laughs> <laughs> 
god. Look a bit you. That's amazing. Yeah, look a bit you. It's full of novors. The thing is, I remember that because I remember like being at the count. I was in the Glasgow count. I remember that result coming through. And suddenly, like, all the sort of people who are running data and stuff are like, yeah, we're fucked, we've lost. If we've lost by that margin, we'll like manage way behind where we need to be to win. We're probably done here. Yeah. And it was, like, right from the start, it was just, like, that blow to the face. Yeah. yeah. Suddenly all the emotion goes out. And there's a little part of you left going, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just an outlier. Maybe other yeah, things will be different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you kind of knew deep down that that was it. Fuck. Yeah, that was that was tough. And when I got back... I'd also just finished half a bottle of Buckfast to ease the nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Before I went into the game. <laughs> When I got back and I arrived in Glasgow, I remember getting in and I think that one of the first people that I met was a Rick activist and she was like, cat is fucked, it's fucked. And I think she put like her whole life savings on a bet that oh, it was going to win. Oh my God. Um, and I just remember being like, no, maybe it's not. Like, we're still like, <laughs> I mean, why? Optimism of the will and all that. <laughs> um, but going into the count and everyone just being really deflated. I remember seeing like uh, Jamie Maxwell sitting on the floor, like with his head in his hands, and like loads of places hadn't declared it because I was there for Glasgow being declared. For the, my favourite moment of that night was Weston Bartonshire. I remember that there's a great photograph of me and Sinead done. At that count, at that bit of the count where Weston Bartonshire's declared, and I'm jumping in the air. That's where like the base is. That's where Fazlane is, and there was like uh. a huge like fear campaign, like run by the no side around that. Like there will be no jobs here. So like when that was declared, I just remember being like, "This is incredible." It was Jackie Bailey's constituencies also in there. So just like being elated at that point, that was one of my favorite moments. Yeah, I remember um, the, the, the silver lining of that night for me was um, after... Do you know what's funny, though? Like, I, I never... I knew what the polls said. Polls weren't as discredited then. I mean, polls have always been discredited. But you know what I mean? I, I didn't... I There was only ever a really small part of me that thought that we could win. But even when that tiny bit is snuffed out, it still kills you, right? Yeah. Um, but see the 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 thing the one another one of the highlights for me was because I went around sort of hearing what all the different because there was loads of dreadful you know party types there the suits and so on. I remember drifting from sort of blob to blob and seeing what everyone was saying. Came up to some Labour guys and they were even though they just lost Dundee and Glasgow. Right. And, and do you know what I mean? If you looked at the board by the end of the night, you could see the way the political yeah. weather was going. You could see that, you know, yes, had been clearly beaten, but there wasn't a good news story for no. the Labour Party. Their historic heartlands had gone against them. And these sort of very stupid, bumpkinish Labour types came over to me and said, like, well played, guys, you know, but we won fair and square, that kind of thing. And I was like, whoa, you're going to get it, man. Yeah. You're about to get You're about to get it. This is the thing, right up to the better, better end, they still thought that they were riding high, some of them. I mean, I dare some say... Of that some of there some, was some, like, right, yeah, yeah. The politicians themselves had a, a different look on their face, a kind of startled look. But the wee, the wee gimps they had, you know, running around them, the little comms people and the little kind of bag carriers and stuff were like... No, well, well fought campaign, guys. Bet a lot next time. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Pete, um, for joining us today. Thanks um, for having me. That's okay. I've really enjoyed our reminiscing session. I've really enjoyed it too. And uh, just for anyone out there, um, I'd like to point out I am reapplying for my US visa right now. It's actually one of the reasons I'm back. So if I've said anything too left wing, I would like to say that for the record, Donald Trump is an excellent president. Please have me back. I salute his courage and indefatigability. <laughs> if you're listening, US Embassy, that is the truth. Yeah. Donald Trump is the funniest president. That is, that is my position. Yeah, yeah. No, seriously, though, it's been great chatting to you both. Uh, and I love the podcast. Please keep it up. It's so much fun. Oh, Cheers. thanks. Uh, if only everyone had such good taste. <laughs> <laughs> right, what well, music will play us out? Imperial oh. Death March? Oh, I suppose so, yeah. It's got to be. got to be. You can follow us on Twitter 
at Kitty Cat Boyd or at David underscore Jameson seven. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> memorable. I'm not even gonna get a Twitter shout out. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm basically never on, so it's funny. You can follow Pete Romand to at Pete Romand. You can also follow our website Contour, which will soon have its very own Contourcast area on the website, um, which will put like some pictures of our radical independence adventures over the years, um, also some of the fun stuff that we see um, on the internet. And you can also donate some cash to us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash contourcast. We want to keep the podcast going and we want to do some live events. So if you've got a little bit of spare cash, then donate it and see you next week. Thank you.